0: Scripture reading for this morning comes from John chapter 17. And I'm going to start reading in verse 12 and go to verse 17. hear the word of the Lord. Jesus says, praying, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask for you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Says the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. You may be seated. Oh, another opportunity for me to say good morning to everyone. Good morning, and um, just want to make a plug for the nine o'clock time um, during the adult Sunday school time. The nine o'clock hour, we are having a Q and, or we're having Q and A sessions with Grant Bostrom as we're seeking to discern uh, whether the Lord is calling him to be the associate pastor. Uh, here at Oak Ridge Community Church, uh, the elders have recommended him. Now it's time for the body to discern the Lord's will in this matter. And so, uh, please make sure you're there for that. It's really important that you be there. If you've missed the last two times, um, I can't help you with the first one, but today we did record uh, the Q and A sessions today. So if you were not here this morning and you would like to hear, what happened. uh, I can make that available for you. However, I would rather that not be the way that we proceed. I would rather you be here at nine o'clock and uh, be able to ask any questions that might come to your mind uh, for Grant. So just want to make that plug as we get going this morning. Please plan to be here next Sunday at 9 a.m. Now we're walking, uh, or excuse me, we're, we're in a small series right now. It's supposed to be small. We'll see. But it is a buffer series between our time in 1 Timothy and what will eventually become our time in the Gospel of John. Uh, and what we're seeking to do is understand how we as believers are to obey the command of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 which is the command to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in introducing this series, we've already said that the only way to grow in understanding and experiencing the joy and the power and the freedom of God's grace that He's given us in Christ, the only way to grow in this area, the Christian life, is by faithful and diligent use of the means of grace. And the means of grace are basically tools that God has given us to work on our own spiritual walk with Him. Tools that He has promised to bless. Tools that He has promised to empower as we seek to use them by His grace and for His glory. And uh, if you could think of it, uh, the means of grace, think of them this way. They are spiritual exercises that God has appointed for us to exercise the new spirit that He has put within us. Uh, regeneration, being born again in Christ, is an act of God, recreating a person, making them a new creature in Christ Jesus, giving them a new heart, filling them with new desires, uh, causing them to be crucified with Christ to their sin, and bringing them to newness of life in Christ and to walk in that newness of life. If you've had that beginnings of if you've had those beginnings of the work of God in your own life then the way that you are to increase in your spiritual strength and the way that you are to grow that spiritual life that God has planted in you is by using these means of grace. These are spiritual exercises by which you will grow through diligent use. I don't know about you. I try to exercise. I try to have some kind of routine uh, that will be good for my body, my makeup, and keep me healthy. However, I can have the routine all day long sitting there on a piece of paper on my desk. If I don't actually get up and go exercise, if I don't go run three miles or trot three miles, I don't run anymore. But if I don't go trot three miles and I don't do my routine of push-ups and and, uh, dumbbell exercises, nothing's going to happen with that routine. Nothing's going to happen with that plan. It's not going to benefit me. It's kind of what the means of grace are. This is God's workout plan for our souls. And if we're going to be benefited by them, then in faith in Jesus Christ, we have to approach these means of grace and use them diligently. Now, we've stated as much in the weeks, the two weeks prior to this, but uh, there are a number of means of grace that we're going to look at in the weeks ahead. Um, Today, what we're going to focus on is the one that is preeminent among all of them. And that is the means of grace that is God's word. The word of God as a means of grace. God's word is the primary tool that God will use to bring spiritual growth to his people. In fact, every other means that God has appointed for our growth is dependent upon the presence of the word of God. They're all appointed, as I've said before, every other means of grace is appointed to be a servant of the Word of God in our lives, to work it more deeply into our hearts and into our understanding, and then to see it more fully expressed, to see the Word of God more fully expressed in our daily lives. And so preeminent among all the means of grace is the Word of God, and that's what we want to focus on today. Kids... Everybody, all the youngsters here, do you, have a, do you have a bulletin? Did you grab a children's bulletin? Yes, no? Raise your hand if you got a bulletin. Okay, so listen, you have to pay extra careful attention this morning because the outline that's in your bulletin is not right anymore. Okay? So don't get confused. The first point is actually now under the second point. Okay. Is that confusing? So we're going to start with the middle point. And point number one is actually going to be under that middle point now. Okay? All right. So don't get confused. you got to listen carefully, and you got to follow along with what I'm saying. Okay? All right, guys? Boys and girls? Kids? You with me? The youth of Oak Ridge Community Church, are you with me? Yes. I don't hear any amens from the youth here. Do I hear an amen? Amen. There's one. Okay, all right, guys, you've got to pay attention, all right? Okay, so as we get into this, let's pray. Let's pray again and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, we, we recognize that your word is what you have given to shepherd us. Your word is what you've given to comfort us and to encourage us, to lead us in a persevering walk with you. It's what you use to instruct us about who you are and then to shed light upon who and what we are. Lord, and You use Your Word to show us our need to be saved in Christ. You you use Your Word to show us the full Savior, the sufficient Savior that Jesus Christ has become for us. And You've given us Your Word to teach us how to lay hold of Him. And how to receive all the blessings of salvation that He has earned for sinners like us. Lord, will You please use Your Word this morning to give us clarity in our understanding of how to Submit ourselves to it. How to, how to yield to your will for us by yielding to your word. God, And we pray that you would use your word mightily in our hearts and minds. May your spirit apply the word of God richly and abundantly to each one of our hearts this morning. Show us how this ought to be worked out in our lives and teach us how to walk in fellowship and communion with you by means of your word. God, I ask this for Jesus' sake and for our good and for our growth and our union with Him. Amen. Okay, so the main thought that we're looking at today is that God's Word is the central means of grace in the lives of His people. God's Word is the central means of grace in the lives of his people. Now before we see that in connection to the verses that we just read, I want to make three general statements about God's Word that we need to keep in mind when we approach the Word of God. Three general statements. Number one, what are we talking about when we speak of God's Word? When we say that God's Word is a means of grace, What are we pointing to? What is that object that we're defining as God's Word? Well, what we're referring to, basically, in a nutshell, is all of the scriptures that we now possess in the collection of 66 books in the Bible. So we have a book that's called the Bible, and the Bible has 66 books in it. In each one of those books, we are saying and God has said, and God has proven, is His Holy Word. This is the Word of God. And the Bible in its totality is what we are talking about when we talk about God's Word being a means of grace for the believer. It is not simply God's Word in the collection of Paul's letters. It's not simply God's Word in the book of Revelation. It's not even simply the New Testament that is the means of grace for the Christian. It is the totality of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation that He has preserved for us in this book that we call the Bible. One very important thing to keep in mind about this book that we call the Bible is that when we are also speaking of this Bible as a means of grace, we are talking about it in a very peculiar and specific way, okay? When we refer to God's word as the means of grace, we are referring to God's word as defined by grace. I don't have this in the slides, but uh, what we read last week, Acts chapter 20, verse 31, Paul says, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. The word of God's grace is not limited or restricted simply to the message about the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and second coming of Christ. That is the content of the word of grace, but that content is found all over the Bible. That content is not relegated to the Gospel of John. It is not relegated to the Gospel of Matthew. It's not limited to the book of Acts or Romans or Galatians or Revelation or any other book strictly limited to the New Testament. It is a message, God's salvation that He has worked in Christ Jesus, the message of His grace. That is the word of grace that He has been proclaiming to us from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. And so in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus was explaining to his apostles how all of the scriptures and Moses and the law and the prophets, all of the scriptures point to him, that is what we're talking about when we're talking about the word of God being used as a means of grace in the life of his people. We're talking about a message from God concerning his grace that has been made known in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Now, I say that because I just want to point out, it does not matter where you are reading in Scripture, you ought to be seeing Christ. If you are not seeing Christ in the Word of God when you are reading the book of Leviticus, then the book of Leviticus is not going to be a means of grace to you, it's going to be a hindrance to you. And that's why a lot of people struggle to read the book of Leviticus, because they don't see Christ in the book of Leviticus. But when you finally are able, by the Spirit of God, to understand the gospel as it was being proclaimed in the book of Leviticus, you won't be able to put the book of Leviticus down. Leviticus is one of my favorite books in the Bible, because of the rich testimony of the gospel of grace that is revealed in that book. See, the entire Bible is about Christ. And if you are not reading the Bible as if it were about Christ, then it will not be a means of grace to you. This is is the content and the substance of the Word that God has given to us. It's a message about His glory revealed in His Son, particularly the glory of God in saving sinners for the glory of Jesus Christ in the name of Christ. Are you with me on that? Is there an amen to that? I see a lot of blank stares. Okay. Okay. That's what the Bible is about. And that's what it means when we're talking about the Word of God being a means of grace. We're talking about it being a tool that God has given us to help us more fully understand the gospel and then more fully apply that gospel to our lives. So when we're talking about God's Word, we're talking about this collection of books, 66 books we call the Bible, that are all pointing us to Jesus Christ. Second thing about the Bible, general statement. We'll see if we get through the message today. Second general statement about the Bible. The Bible is how God has chosen to speak to you and me today. The Bible is how God has chosen to speak to us today. The Bible is God's communication to us. You can see this for example in 2nd Peter chapter 1 verses 20 and 21. Where Peter says that scripture is the product of men who were being carried along by the Holy Spirit as they spoke from God. That is the scriptures are the product of men speaking from God by being carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Bible is the product of God speaking through men by the Holy Spirit. Now that means that the Bible is not merely a collection of men's thoughts about who God is, or what He's like, or God's actions in history. It is not man's interpretation of what a good religion would be. I used to work with a guy that thought that the Bible was good for humanity and building a society upon it, but... It was just the best guess of a bunch of drunk fishermen, and they just happened to get it right. That's how a lot of people view the Bible. It's just one collection of men's thoughts about God. And that is not what the Bible is. The Bible is actually God's speech to us. It is His inspired, it is His infallible, it is His inerrant and His living and active word that He has preserved for our good and for a testimony of His name for us. That's why 2 Timothy 3.16 describes all scripture as being inspired by God. That's really not a good word in the NASB to translate this. It's not inspired as if God breathed into these words and it became God's word. The ESV does a better translate, has a better translation here. All scripture is breathed out by God. It is the product of the breath of God as he communicates truth to us. Now that means... The Bible, as God's speech, means that when we pick up the Scriptures and begin to read them, and please listen to me here, when you pick up the Bible and you begin to read the Bible, you are sitting under the very voice of God. I can tell you don't get that. Because of what the Bible is, it is the speech of God. Every time someone picks up the Scriptures and begins to read them, that person is sitting under the very voice of God speaking to them. In other words, God is speaking to you when you read the Scriptures. Jesus said as much to the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 22, verse 31. When he's rebuking them for their misunderstanding of the Scriptures, you err, he says, because you don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God. You don't understand what you're talking about because you don't really understand the Scriptures. And then he looks at them and he says, Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Let me point out a couple things about that statement. Jesus, first of all, does not say what was spoken to your fathers when he says, have you not read what was spoken? He doesn't say, have you not read what was spoken to your ancestors? He says, have you not read what was spoken to you? Secondly, Jesus locates the voice of God, God's speech, As something that a person hears when they read the scriptures. In other words, Jesus locates the voice of God to the written word of God. Have you not read? What do you read? Do you read speech or do you read something that's written? You read something that's written. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? So in Jesus' view, when we are reading the Scriptures, we are reading the speech of God. Therefore, when you're hearing the Word of God read, you are hearing the speech of God read. So Jesus' view of Scripture is that when you read it, God is speaking to you. He's not speaking anything new to you, but He is speaking to you currently through what He has already said. Now, Jesus' view of Scripture that we find here is what led Thomas Watson to say that the two testaments of the Bible are the two lips by which God speaks to us. That's a wonderful picture. The two testaments of the Word of God are the two lips by which God speaks to us. And he encouraged believers in light of that to think this way. Thomas Watson said in his Body of Divinity, When you read the Bible you need to think in every line that you read that God is speaking to you. Do you read the Bible that way? When you pick up the the Scriptures of God, are you thinking to yourself on every line that you read, God is speaking this to me? He went on to say, you need to read the Scriptures not only as history, but as a love letter sent to you from God which may affect your hearts. It's Thomas Watson, a Puritan, speaking very glowingly, very deeply about how we ought to relate to the Word of God because of what it is. It's the speech of God. It's how God speaks to us. See, God has recorded what He has spoken to others in the past, not just so that we would know what He said to them, but so that we will recognize that what He said to them is what He is saying to us now. Because God doesn't change, when God spoke once, that speech applies as long as it remains with us. So, does that make sense? You with me still? Okay. Number three. God has decided that his word will be the touch point of fellowship with his people. God has decided that his word will be the touch point of fellowship with his people. In other words, all of your fellowship with God will flow from your interaction with His Word. One time I had a pastor who tried to rebuke me for being so focused on God's Word. Maybe some of you have had this happen before. The pastor said, God wants to show you things that are not written in the Bible. And he said that right after insinuating a charge against me that I was worshiping the Bible as the fourth person of the Trinity. Well, anyone who thinks that way simply does not understand how God intends his people to walk in fellowship with him. And they certainly do not have the spirit within them that moved the writer of Psalm 119.48 to say what he said. He said, I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, the object of his worship, the commandments of God. Lifting up your hands is often in scripture discussing lifting up your hands in prayer, lifting up your hands in worship. And the psalmist says, I lift my hands to the commandments of God. Anyone who doesn't have a high view of God's word in relation to the Christian does not have the same spirit of the psalmist there. Now, I want you to think about this. From the very beginning of creation, when God made mankind, he established our relationship to him to be a word-centric relationship. A word-centered relationship. Are you with me? From the beginning, God determined that mankind's relationship with him would be centered upon his spoken word. How do I prove that? Where do I get that? Well, I get that from what we find in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were being tempted by the devil, did God appear alongside them and start re-speaking things that he had already spoken to them? When the devil was casting his lies upon the word of God to Adam and Eve, did God manifest himself and start whispering in Adam's ear, now remember what I said, Adam, remember what I said. If you eat the tree, you're going to die. You eat the tree, you're going to die. God didn't do that. He didn't manifest and give Adam a new word. He didn't sit there and talk with Adam as the devil was talking with Adam. God had already told Adam what he expected Adam to do. He already told Adam, You do not eat from this tree, for the day in which you eat of it, you shall surely die. And God didn't come to Adam and say that same word again when the devil came tempting. What did God expect Adam and Eve to do with what he told them before? He he expected them to hold on to that word and to let that word govern their lives as they moved forward in taking dominion in God's creation. Now, I I just say that to say that from the very beginning, even in the garden, when we had a perfect relationship of fellowship and intimacy with God, God designed that relationship with him to be word-centered. And it was a matter of faith whether we would believe in God enough to obey his word and to trust in what he has said. Now that pattern of walking in fellowship with God means, by means of walking under the light of his word continues to be with us and continues to be the standard by which we walk today. And if we will not walk with God in the light of his word, then God by his spirit will not be walking with us. And so I bring all that to say that God has decided that all of his redemptive dealings with us in Christ will be accomplished and realized through our relationship to him and his word. Now, what does John 17 have to do with anything that I've said? Well, in John 17, we find Jesus making very clear that his convictions are nothing less than what I've just said. In John 17, we find Jesus saying the very same thing, that God's word will be the central means of grace in the lives of his disciples. As it says in John 17, 17, Jesus prays to the Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Now, to be sanctified, let me me start here. There is a lot in this chapter and in this section that we are not going to talk about today, okay? Okay? I recognize that, so don't come up to me after the service and say, hey, you didn't talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this. You didn't, you didn't talk about the fullness of what's going on in this passage in relation to the Word of God. Trust me, I know that. I cut out 1,200 words in this section. I, I know that there is a lot to be said here, and we're going to get to that when we actually walk through the Gospel of John. What I want to do right now is simply focus in on what Jesus is saying about our relationship to God's Word. Okay. And in order to understand what Jesus has to say about our relationship to his word, we need to understand John 17, 17 within its context. John 17, 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now this phrase is right in the middle of what is often called Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's this prayer that he is offering as the divine representative of his people right before he gives his life over for their redemption, right before he lays his life down and sheds his blood upon the altar of God in order to make atonement for our sins and to reconcile us to the Father, before Jesus does that, he prays a prayer of preservation and blessing over his people. And right in the middle of this prayer, we find Jesus making this statement about the use and the function of God's word in the lives of his people. Why is that? Well, as I said before, I think the answer is in the context. Up to this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus has been physically present with his disciples. And I want you to notice what he says in John 17, verse 12. In John 17, verse 12, Jesus says to us, or to the Father in his prayer, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. He says, I guarded them and none of them perished with the exception of the son of perdition. Here, Jesus says that while he was with his disciples, he was the one that was preserving them. He was keeping them from falling into the temptations of the devil. He was keeping them from succumbing to the ways of the world. He was guarding them in the truth so that their faith would remain. Jesus was the one who kept the disciples so that they didn't fall away from him. But now... At this point, verse 13 tells us that things were about to change. See, while Jesus was with his disciples, he was the one that was guarding them. He was the one that was protecting them. However, now the time is coming when Jesus is going to return to the Father. He says, but now I am coming to you. Now that leads to a question. If Jesus Christ was the one who was keeping his people while he was on earth, and now he is going to return to the Father in heaven, how would his people be kept in the faith in his physical absence? When he's no longer physically present among them, how would his people be preserved in the faith? How would they be kept from the evil one? How would they be kept from following the ways of the world? How would they be preserved in living a life of faithfulness unto God and uh, and ultimately making it to glory? How would that happen if Jesus was no longer going to be among them physically? Amen? The Holy Spirit? I had 1,200 words on that. That's what I had to cut out. Yes, the Holy Spirit. But I want you to notice what Jesus focuses on here in this context. The Holy Spirit is not absent from this context, but what is the Holy Spirit using to shepherd the people of God and to preserve and keep them in the faith? Well, Jesus' answer to that is very simple, and yet it's very profound in relation to what we're looking at this morning. In verse 15, Jesus prays not for the Father to take His people out of the world with Him, but rather that the Father would keep them from the evil one. Now here, there's a transference going on. Verse 12, Jesus said, I was the one keeping them, but now I'm going back to the Father. Father, now I am entrusting this role of keeping my disciples into your hands. You keep them from the evil one, Father. And what would be the means of the Father keeping his people? That's verse 17. Father, I pray that you would keep them from the evil one, sanctify them in the truth as it has been given in the word. You see, what Jesus is doing here, he is acknowledging and he's praying that the Lord would hold firm his plan for keeping his people by shepherding them through the means of his word. Now, there's a lot to be said here. We don't have the time. But you see the connection. You see what's going on. In Jesus' physical absence, what was going to be the shepherd's staff and rod that God would use to maneuver and guide and protect and guard and tend his sheep? It's going to be his word. That is going to be the primary means that God uses to grow his people in grace, to feed them in the richness of of the grace of God, to sanctify them in the truth. So while we are in this world and we are mourning that sense of separation from the one whom our soul loves, you feel that, right? You've been made to love Jesus Christ and yet we are not in the fullness of his presence yet. You feel that longing and that yearning to be with the one who purchased your soul. You're looking for and you're pining for greater nearness and intimacy and fellowship with him. You're waiting for the day of his return when he will take you home to be with him forever. Right? That's, that's a mark of being a true Christian. That's longing and yearning for that day, eagerly anticipating the time when we will be with Christ Jesus. That's what marks our sojourning right now in this world. What God is going to use to keep us encouraged and to keep us persevering in the faith and to keep our souls satisfied in that Jesus that we are not with right now, what God is going to use to minister to our hearts in light of that physical absence is His Holy Word. So the Word will be the primary tool that the Father uses to keep and preserve Christ's people, and that's what Jesus is magnifying here in this passage. Now, if that's the case, and the Word of God is going to be the primary means of God's grace in our lives, how then should we respond to that truth? In light of what we've just seen in John 17, there's nothing more important for us to do than to understand how to cultivate greater fellowship with God in His Word. You guys still with me? See some closed eyes out there. There's nothing more important than this. If this is the primary tool in God's life, then what we want to figure out is how can we set ourselves under that tool? How can we put ourselves under the hand of God, wielding this tool in our lives to shape us and fashion us into greater uh, greater apprehension of grace? Well, I want to offer six ways that we can grow in grace by the means of God's Word. Six ways. I'm going to try and get this done in ten minutes. Okay? I heard an amen. (laughs) I'm going to try. All right. Six ways to grow in grace by means of God's word. Now, I want you to understand I am just offering practical steps right now, practical instructions that God has given us in his word for understanding how to use his word as a means of grace. I'm not telling you exactly how to work this out in your own life. I'm telling you practical steps that God gives us in His Word. It is your responsibility to develop a plan to implement these things in your daily walk with Christ. So I'm going to point to the principles, and you're going to go home, and you're going to work those principles out in your own personal context. Right? Amen. Amen. Okay. Number one thing that we can do to put ourselves under God's word as a means of grace is simply to read it. Read God's word, and we would be putting ourselves under the influence of God's word. Throughout scripture, we find that God gives his word to us with an expectation that his people would actually read it. And in reading it, God uses his word to grow his people in grace. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 10 through 12. Every seven years, Israel was to be gathered. And in that gathering, they were to have the law of God read to them. Simply read. Someone standing up, reading the totality of God's word that had been given to them in the law. Verse 12 tells us the benefit that would come from that. says, when all the people were assembled, and you're reading the word, the men and the women and the children. I think that's really important for us to keep in mind. Children weren't absent. They weren't off in children's church or down in the nursery. They were with the people. Assemble the people, the men and women and the children and the alien who is in your town, so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe the words of His law. Now, notice the benefits here. First of all is the benefit of hearing the Lord your God. If you would hear what God has to say, then you must come to God by means of His Word. This is the first benefit of hearing the Word of God read to them. They were hearing the Lord their God in hearing the Word read. Second benefit, they were learning about God and they were learning about God's will. If you want to know what God expects from you, if you want to know how God wants you to walk with Him, then you have to read the instructions that He's given The word of God. Third, reading the word of God actually worked within the people a greater sense of godly fear. God used the reading of his law to increase godly fear in the hearts of his people. If you want to learn how to walk in the fear of the Lord and how to turn away from sin, how to walk in God's favor by fearing him above all else, the word of God will instruct you in doing that. And reading the Word of God will be the means that God uses to grow you in that. Now, that's an Old Testament principle. In the New Testament, we find that it wasn't just to be every seven years that the people gathered to hear the Word of God read. In fact, it was to be at every corporate assembly. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul tells Timothy that he was to devote himself, among other things, to the public reading of Scripture. In fact, Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 19, the word of God was so vital to the health of God's people that those who ruled over them as kings were commanded to read his word every single day. See this there? It shall be the king will make a copy of the wall for himself and it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. Now I want you to know something. In the New Testament, we don't have kings reigning over us. We have one king. His name is Jesus. And in Jesus Christ, all of His people have been made kings and queens. Right? This is Revelation 5.10. He has made us by His blood a kingdom and priest unto our God, and we shall reign on the earth with Him. Now, if God's expectations for teaching an Old old Covenant, Old Testament king, how to rule his people well and how to represent God well in the nation of Israel, if that was dependent upon that man reading the Word of God every day, is it not the same for us? If we, as princes and princesses, as we have kings and queens in Christ, if we would know how to walk in this world representing the kingdom of heaven well, we too must heed those instructions that were given to the Old Testament king, and we must read the Word of God daily. I saw a study that said only 11% of evangelical Christians actually admit to reading the Word of God five times a week. Those who read it every day, less. The majority of people picked up their Bible less than once every other week. Now, if that's you, listen. I want to encourage you. I'm not here to scold you or condemn you for that. But you've got to understand, if you are going to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, it will not happen apart from you coming in humility to God by means of His Word. You are submitting yourself to the Lord and you are, when you are reading Scripture, you are coming before God in humility and you are confessing not what I have to say, Lord, but what you have to say. Not what I think, Lord, but what you think. Teach me. Give me understanding. Give me insight that I may walk in the ways of my God. It's not going to happen if you're not reading the Word of God. So I exhort you, I encourage you, I plead with you, Be reading God's Word every day. That's not something I made up. That's a principle from the Old Testament law. Read it every day. Now, when you do that, it's important to understand that how you go about reading God's Word is not as foundational or important as simply making sure that you are doing it. Okay? Maybe a reading plan works best for you. Maybe the reading plans that we publish through our monthly newsletter, the Oak Bridge. Maybe that's what works best for you. Praise the Lord, use it. Maybe that doesn't work best for you. Maybe you're the kind of person that would rather just take one book at a time and read that book consistently, and then whenever you get to the end of that book, you go to a different book. That's fine. Maybe you're the kind of person that wants to read ten chapters at a time. Maybe you're the, a different kind of person that maybe is stuck on one paragraph at a time. That was me for most of my Christian life. One paragraph at a time. I know that's shocking to you guys, but that's how the Lord reared me in His Word. That From the very beginning, that's how God was dealing with my heart in His Word. It was just one statement at a time. And so you're just stuck with me the way I am. I'm sorry. I'm trying to be better. Maybe that's you. Maybe maybe you are someone you just like to take one little chunk at a time and you, you study that out phrase by phrase. You see how it connects and it blows your mind and fills your heart with a sense of Christ. Then that's what you need to be doing. You need to be content with the way the Lord has made you. And you need to be content with the ways in which the Lord will deal with you. It's not important how you go about reading the Word. What is important is that you're doing it. You know, maybe some of you have reached an age where it's really difficult for you to read. Maybe you can't see very clearly anymore. Or maybe your mind does better when someone is reading the Scriptures to you rather than you reading it to yourselves. Hey, get an audio Bible, right? And set aside a time every day and just listen to the reading of God's Word. You can read through the whole Bible in 72 hours. Audio Bibles have proven that to us. Right? So maybe that's what you need. It doesn't matter how you do it, just make sure you're doing it. So number one, boy, we gotta get moving. Number one, read the word. (laughs) Read the word. Number two, study the word. Study the word. It's not enough just to read it, let your eyes pass over it. You need to be studying the word. Jerry Bridges said, Reading the word gives breadth to our understanding studying the Word gives depth to our understanding. So if we read the Word a lot, we're going to have a broad understanding of what God's Word is teaching us. But if we actually take what we're reading and study it, then we get a depth in our understanding of God and His will for us. God not only wants us to read His Word, but we actually find in the Scriptures that He does want us to study it. You see, for example, though we're not all called to be in the same ministry of Ezra, we still see in Ezra 7, Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, a godly principle that ought to be a part of each one of our lives. Ezra, it says in Ezra 7:10, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now, I want you to notice that learning how to practice God's word and learning even how to help others practice God's Word is dependent upon studying God's Word. Ezra studied the Word first, and then he understood how to practice it, and then he understood how to help others. If you want to know how to practice God's Word and you want to know how to help others practice God's Word, then you got to study God's Word. And then you know Acts 17.11, the Bereans, they were counted as more noble Minded than those who were at Thessalonica. Why? Because they were willing to go take the message of the gospel and take it back to the scriptures and examine its validity. They were studying it. And as a result, Acts 17, 12 says, Therefore, because of this, many of them believed. Studying the word of God increases faith in the word of God. And then just jot down 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 there, and go read that for yourselves, that paying attention to the prophetic word is what God uses to cause the light, the day to dawn within our hearts. You're struggling with a sense of not perceiving the glory of Christ. You're not understanding more about Jesus. He's not glorious to you the way He ought to be. Then what should you do? You should, according to Peter, go pay attention to the prophetic word in light of the gospel until the light of Christ dawns on your heart. It's studying the word that causes you to perceive more fully the glory of Jesus Christ. So, Let me give a word here for those, you older folks, or those who have studied much of the word like me. Don't think that just because you've studied something once, you've got it mastered. Paul, at the end of his life, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, he knows he's on the chopping block and he's just about ready to die. He's going to be put to death. And yet here, at the end of his life, this man who was used so mightily to minister the gospel to so many people and to plant churches and to see... Christian strengthened in the truth. He was giving the whole counsel of God to the people of God, his entire ministry. And yet here at the end of his life, what do we find to be his main concern? Well, number one, he's cold and he wants a cloak because it's really cold in these cells in Rome. These dungeon cells that are damp and drafty, filled with water. It's winter time. What's his next concern? Give me food. Labor for letters of clemency? No. Make sure you bring the cloak and the books, especially the parchments. Most commentators agree that this is talking about the scriptures of the Old Testament and the writings concerning the accounts of Christ's life that would ultimately become the content of the New Testament. So what is Paul wanting here? Right at the end of his life, he's about ready to pass into glory. And yet he wants the books and the parchments so that he can study the will of God for him. I, I find that fascinating. And I want to be like that. Even on my deathbed, I want to be the kind of person that is studying the Word of God. Man. Do, can I cut it here? No. no? Okay. All right. Okay. You guys know of John Piper's analogy, right? the difference between raking gravel on the surface and actually digging down and mining for gold. If you want to be a shallow Christian, if you want to be shallow in your Christianity, then just stay on the surface of God's Word. Just just let your eyes graze over the chapters, just kind of read over it fast, go about your day as if you've already done your duty and don't think about it anymore. But if you want to find the treasure that is contained in God's Word, the treasure that the Puritans discovered, the treasure that ignited them to live the kind of lives that were sold out for the glory of God. If you want to find the treasure that Martin Luther found and caused him to stand firm in the face of opposition and persecution, then, beloved, you've got to study the Word of God. You've got to dig down deep and become grounded in its truths. You've got to be somebody who can pull out of their treasure chest treasures both new and old. You've got to be in Jesus' words. You dig down for gold. Don't be afraid to do it either. So It's what we're going to be doing for all eternity. So Might as well start now. Number three, memorize the Word of God. So number one, read it. Number two, study it. Number three, memorize it. To grow in grace, we must take the Word of grace and force it into our minds and hearts. God demands this. I don't know if you knew this, but God actually demands for us to memorize His Word. It's not an option. It's not a take it or leave it thing. If you're going to be faithful to God, you have to memorize Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18. The Lord says to His people, You shall therefore impress these words of Mine upon your heart and on your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands and as frontals on your forehead. That's a command, guys. And if God commanded something like that kind of attachment to His Word in the Old Covenant, does He not command much more so in the New Covenant? That we would take His Word of grace and impress it upon our hearts and minds to bind His Word to us. That it would be as frontals on our forehead. That we would always be viewing everything through the lens of God's word. If you're going to live that kind of life, you're not going to be able to do it walking around like this. If you want the word of God to be a frontal on your forehead, then you have to have this word planted firmly in your mind. So that as you are walking about your day, you are able to recall God's Word. You are able to think about it. You're able to funnel everything that you're experiencing in that day through the filter of God's Word. Weeding out what's unhelpful, holding fast to what is good, seeking to be faithful in every circumstance that the Lord brings you to. That, is, that only happens as a result of keeping the Word of God in your heart and mind. You've got to memorize it. You guys know Psalm 119.11. Memorizing the Word of God will keep you from sin. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee, the psalmist says. A protection against sin. It's only going to come by memorizing the word of God. And then you know this one, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. That is, it's our responsibility to make sure that the word and the teaching about Jesus Christ is dwelling inside of us with a fullness We're not meager Christians. We're not starving Christians. We are richly fed upon the truths of Jesus Christ, so much so that we're ready for that truth to spill out of us when we gather together with the people of God. Because that's the context he's talking about here. Let the Word of Christ dwell richly in you so that with all wisdom you will be able to teach and admonish one another with the truth. Memorizing scripture is a means that God uses to build up healthy fellowship within the body of Christ. And he expects us to do it. So we study it. No, we we read it. We study it. We memorize it. Now, fourthly, we meditate upon it. And we'll just go through this one quickly. You know Psalm Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's the blessed man. The one who meditates upon the word of God. And you notice the fruit that comes from that. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does he prospers. See it is meditating upon the word of God that leads your feet out of the path of the scoffers. It keeps you from going down the path of the wicked and the ungodly and leads you into the path of righteousness for Christ's sake. It's it's meditating upon the Word of God that causes you to be a fruitful tree for the glory of Christ and to bear fruit for His name. You guys know the analogy. The best analogy of what meditation means. It's the cow chewing the cud, right? You ingest you ingest the cow, not, not you, hopefully you don't do this, but the cow ingests the hay or the, the grass or whatever it's eating, and it goes into one part of his stomach where it's mixed with all kinds of fluids. And I know this is wonderful and graphic, but then he regurgitates what he just took into that stomach, and he continues chewing on it. And then he'll swallow it again, and it'll go into a second part of his stomach And he will regurgitate it again and he will keep chewing on that hay so that he gets all the nutrients that he can out of that piece of grass or whatever it is. That's the best analogy for what it means to meditate on God's word. If you've read it and studied it and memorized it, then you need to discipline yourself to make sure that you're thinking about it. How often we read the scriptures and we study the scriptures and we memorize the scriptures, but we go throughout our day without ever giving another thought to what we've read, what we've memorized, what we've studied. God wants us to discipline ourselves. If we would be fruitful Christians, then we must be those who chew the cut of the word. What he drills into our souls and hearts in the morning, we've got to be able to regurgitate that spiritually speaking and chew on it throughout the rest of our day. So... Meditate upon it. Number five, sit under the preaching of it. <laughs> this will be very One of these verses will be very appropriate for today. Uh, just wait. But Acts 2.42, sitting under the preaching and teaching of the apostles is one of the four main pillars of corporate fellowship. One of the four main pillars of corporate fellowship that marked the first century church was preaching and teaching. And then verses 44 through 47 tells us all the benefits that come from that. Not only greater fellowship among the believers in the church, but also the Lord adding to the number of the believers daily. So preaching and teaching has been a staple of healthy church life from the very founding. In Acts 15, 32, this is one of my favorites concerning preaching. And Judas and some, one of you laughed and one of you got it, yeah. And Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. (laughs) Now we know what lengthy messages meant in that time because I I believe it's in Acts 19 where Paul is preaching all night and the kid falls asleep in the window well and actually falls out of the building and dies, right? Uh, Paul wasn't concerned about the clock. (laughs) These guys were encouraging the brethren with a lengthy message. It was the preaching that the Lord was using to strengthen and encourage the brethren. That's what I'm trying to point out there. And then in verse 35, Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. Preaching and teaching the word of God is a primary means of grace that manifests in the life of the church. Romans 16, 25, it says that it is specifically... The preaching of Jesus Christ that is able to establish believers in the gospel. The preaching. And then let me close on this one, on this topic, sitting under the preaching. Mark 4.24, Jesus says to those who are listening to his preaching, he says, pay attention to what you hear. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, Jesus is preaching a sermon right now. And he looks at those who are listening to him and he says, you need to be careful how you are hearing me. You got to pay attention to what you are hearing because the measure that you use in this context of listening to my preaching will be the measure by which it is given back to you. In other words, the amount of blessing and encouragement and spiritual strength that God is going to let you receive through the preaching of His Word is directly correlative to, correlates to how important you view what's going on right now. How much are you paying attention to the proclamation of the word? To the degree that you are doing that, to that same degree you will be blessed by it, is the point. That's what Jesus says here in Mark 4.24. So, preaching and teaching the word is a primary manner in which the word of God as a means of grace is manifested in the corporate fellowship of the church. So that's number five. If you want to grow in grace by using the Word of God as a means of grace, sit under the preaching of it. And then number six, finally, walk in the Word of the Lord. Read it, study it, memorize it, meditate upon it, sit under the preaching of it, and then walk in it. Do all of these activities with the intention of actually obeying what God has spoken to you in His Word. It does no good to read and study and learn and memorize and meditate upon any of this if you're not actually going to be someone who walks it out. You remember James chapter 1, verse 22, following the charge to receive the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. James says, but prove yourselves doers of the Word and not just hearers. Because hearers delude themselves. See, to hear the word but not be a doer of the word is simply to be deceived and to be living a life of hypocrisy. So be a doer of the word. Now, J.C. Ryle has one of the best quotes relating to being a doer of the word. J.C. Ryle was an Anglican minister in the 1800s, evangelical Anglican, gospel-centered Anglican, I mean. And um, he said that the Bible is read best when it is practiced the most. The Bible that is read best is the Bible that is practiced the most. If you're truly giving yourself to the practice of God's Word, when you go to read God's Word, its applications and its glories and its connections will be unfolded before you by the Lord. He will bless your obedience to His will by measuring back to you more, in Jesus' analogy. So these are six ways that God tells us to place ourselves under his word. Now in conclusion, you guys ready? Just a couple more minutes, stay with me. I want to say two things in conclusion. Number one, in all of this we are not making ourselves grow in grace. What we are doing is simply placing ourselves under the influence of God's word as a means of grace. And as we do that, we are waiting in faith and trusting that God will keep his promise. And he will use these means to grow us in the gospel. And then number two, it is not enough to do these things, all of these activities, and simply call it good. And think that we fulfilled our duty because we've prayed and, or because we've meditated and studied and read and memorized the word of God. It's not enough to do that and then, and then call it good. We can read and study and do all of these other things. But if the Holy Spirit is not actually taking those truths that we're reading and richly applying those truths to our hearts and lives, then everything that we are doing is in vain. John Dagg, a Baptist from the 1800s, he wrote, Unless the truth strengthens the inner man and gives increased vigor for the Christian life, our study of the Word has been in vain. Now, I think we would all say that we don't want our efforts in seeking God and His Word to be in vain. So as we give ourselves to the word, let's also be praying for the spirit of truth to take that word and to sanctify it in our hearts. To press in the truth upon our hearts and to apply it so directly and so powerfully to our lives that there will be no question as to how it applies in our daily, in our daily walk with Christ. Let's press in upon the word and pray that the spirit would apply it directly to us and draw us upward. To the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray that the Lord would do that. Lord, we do pray that you would bless your word to our hearts and lives. We pray that you would teach us how to walk in your word as a means of grace. We pray that you would strengthen us in its truths. Lord, that you would you would build up the walls of our defenses around us. Lord, that you would cultivate the garden that we are to have with Christ, that there would be that sweet fellowship with you in your word. God, I pray that by your spirit, we would be awakened to see the riches that you've planted in your word that are just waiting for us to discover. Lord, please uh, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law and help us see the most wondrous thing of all when we turn to your word. Help us see the truth and the beauty in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand for our closing hymn? And therefore, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. I pray that as you use the means of grace in God's word, that you believe God will come to you. He will come to you like the rain watering the earth. May you go in grace and peace and faith in Christ and discover that for yourselves. Amen.